Okay, let's get everybody in from the beginning to the end, session number 12. That means we have what? One after this one. One more. There'll be 13. And uh, we welcome you tonight. This is, uh, this is wonderful text tonight. I look forward to teaching it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the storyline tonight, the resurrection. Uh, it is our hope. It's what changed all of mankind. So, Lord, to bless our time together, open our minds to understand the scriptures, that we might know you in new ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When our kids were small, I remember a special toy that they had. It was a jack-in-the-box. I can still see their faces as they would crank the handle, knowing in advance that it was going to jump out, but they still would jump and laugh every time Jack would pop his head up. And then they would just sit there and make me do it over and over and over and over. I got to where I hated that little thing. They knew it was coming, but they couldn't help but be surprised. That brings me to tonight's chapter 27. How could they have been surprised? In fact, if you study the New Testament, that's a big question. How could they have been surprised? Jesus told them over and over and over again he would die and that he was going to rise from the dead on the third day. Why would someone be startled, shocked, and amazed by something that you knew was coming? He told you multiple times. So let's look at that. Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples, he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed. And on the third day, he'd be raised to life. Now, Matthew records that as advanced knowledge that Jesus had told people that in advance. Matthew 17, they will kill him on the third day. He'll be raised to life. The disciples are filled with grief. So their grieving tells you that they understood it. They heard it. They understood it. That's why they're grieving. Luke 9, 22. He said, the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. He must be killed on the third day, be raised to life. Hearing is one thing. Believing is another thing, right? Even today, I mean, you, there's a lot of people that hear a lot of stuff, but you have to internalize it for it to become real that you would respond to it appropriately. Death has a way of canceling out hope. Let, let's face it. Um, death can cancels out hope. So when Jesus dies on the cross, whatever they might have thought they knew, it looks from their perspective like it just got canceled. Because death cancels out hope cancels out expectancy. Death is the final sting. Death says it's over. I've often liked to describe it like this. Death is a red line that when you cross it, you have the idea you can't get back. It's the final big red line. So why does death seem so final? Because it's been final since the time of Adam. No exceptions. You, you can find Enoch and Elijah, that's not very many exceptions in human history. You might think of yourself, well, what about Lazarus? But I tell you, the bad part about Lazarus is he got to die twice. Think about it. I mean, you, do you want that program? He died two times. Death is sure. With all this in your head right now, let's go back to the Lazarus funeral and look again at the words of Jesus. And, and why do I do that? Because it is in that Lazarus scene that Jesus reveals a whole lot of what's going to happen to him. In fact, let me just say this up front. The Lazarus event is a preview of what Jesus is going to experience. It's a preview. I mean, if you study Scripture, you see all these previews, all these shadows that are fulfilled later by Christ. Well, Lazarus is one of those shadows, those previews. So let's go to John 11. Lazarus has been dead four days. Jesus finally comes back into town. And Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. Now, what, what do you think that means? 
If you'd have got here before he crossed that red line, you could have grabbed him and brought him back. But ain't nobody can grab somebody on the other side of the red line. She still doesn't know who he is. But in this scene, he's going to reveal his true identity. And the red line doesn't apply to him. If you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus says, your brother will rise again. Now, that's a, that's a pretty definitive statement. Lazarus, four, he'd, been buried in the, he'd been buried four days by the time he says this. Your brother will rise again. Now, notice Martha's answer. It tells you a whole lot about what Martha had already learned from being around Jesus. What does she say? I know he will rise in the resurrection of the last day. Now, this is a Jewish family, Martha, Mary, Lazarus. It's a Jewish family, so they have an idea about eternity. Um, Pharisees that taught, they believed in an afterlife. Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife. And they were competing Jewish factions. Um, but Martha makes something clear. I know he'll rise at the resurrection of the last day, but I don't want to wait for the resurrection of the last day. If you'd have been here before he crossed over the red line, we wouldn't have to talk about this. That's kind of what Martha's saying here. She, you know, why did you wait until he went over the red line? I know about the last day thing. And Jesus, here it comes. Here it comes. This is it. I am the resurrection. He doesn't say I specialize in resurrections. I can produce resurrections. I have secret knowledge of resurrections. What's he say? I am the resurrection. And I am life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Now this first one, it's kind of a two-part statement. The first one is Lazarus. Whoever believes in me will live even if he's been dead and buried across the red line for four days. Now, I don't know that she's getting it right now, but he says, whoever lives and believes, whoever believes in me will live even if he's dead and buried. And over here's Lazarus dead and buried. Okay? So that's the first application. Even if you're dead and buried. And then he's going to take it up a notch. All right? He, that's big. <laughs> that's big. But he's going to take it up, up a notch. And he who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me, which means you're not dead and buried yet. You're still alive. You live and believe in me, you'll never die. Never die. Now, I imagine at this point that just went right over her head. Because then he asked, do you believe this? What he's really talking about is the human soul, not the body, but the soul. It is eternal. And whoever lives and believes in me, you will never face death. And death, in Jesus' perspective, is separation from God. So, and, and let me be clear on that. Separation from God is separation from life. I am the resurrection. I am life. I am resurrection. I am life. To, to be separated from Jesus is to be separated from life. There might be a consciousness. Not might be. I shouldn't say that. There is a consciousness, but it's not defined in the Bible as life. Are people in hell conscious? Yes. Is it called life? No. It's a consciousness without life. It's a consciousness without life. Life is to be connected to life. We only have life. that We don't experience a death. You'll, you'll never die. The concept of never dying is that you're connected to life that's eternal. And if you're connected to eternal life, you can't die because eternal life doesn't die. It's him. It's him. So when, when Christ is in me and I am in him, guess what? You can't die. Not because of me, because of him. He's life. He's resurrection, which means two things. One, he's life, which means he can't die. And number two, he's resurrection, that even if the flesh dies, he'll give you new flesh. Okay? And then he says that four words that defines humanity. Do you believe this? Those four words can roll away a stone. It's called faith. 
And when I say roll away a stone, it is to remove the red line of human history. It is to remove mankind's greatest fear, the grave. Right? John eleven thirty eight. Jesus, now, now he's moved a little bit further toward the grave of Lazarus. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone. Now, now put yourself in the scene. You're thinking, four days. Four days he's been in there. Oh, this, this is not good. Take away the stone. But Lord, Martha said to, uh, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor and he's been dead for four days. What do you think that sentence said? Please don't. Please, please don't humiliate our family. Now what, what preceded that? Do you believe this? Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now, is she still thinking, yeah, that's the resurrection of the last day. Who wants to wait that long? No, no, I'm talking about you'll see the glory of God today, like now. So they took away the stone. Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, stop, stop again. Why is that important? If you thought Jesus, that guy standing in the graveyard, was God, and these Jewish people know Yahweh, okay? They, they know about Yahweh. If they thought that that guy standing there is God wrapped in human flesh, they would look at him totally different. This, this, is, this is God, the creator of the universe. It's Yahweh. See, they're still thinking, they're still not getting it. They're still not getting it. So what did he say? Um, for the benefit of the people standing here so that they would know that you sent me. And I'm, I'm like this with you. Verse 43. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. So if you're standing there that day, what are you thinking? Oh, no. What's about to happen? This was a preview. I don't know if you've ever thought of it like this. This is a preview of the event that was coming. The death and the resurrection of Jesus. Roll away the stone. Does that sound familiar? It's in the Easter story. Is it possible to move this heavy stone of death? What's the stone represent? Death. If you believe. Now, back to the events leading up to the incredible Sunday morning resurrection. Matthew 27. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, while Jesus was still alive, that deceiver, they're calling Jesus the deceiver. The, the only truth on the earth, they're calling the deceiver. That when he, when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I'll rise again. Now, here's what's interesting. The disciples were struggling with it, but they knew it. They knew, they, he said after three days, he's going to rise again. So they were, they were knowledgeable that he had predicted, prophesied his own resurrection. So, give an order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come, steal the body, tell the people he's been raised from the dead. The last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go and make the tomb secure, as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, putting a seal on the stone, number one. Now there's a stone over the entrance. They put a seal on the stone, and then they post guards. The stone is bad enough, but seal the stone, post a guard. No wonder the disciples had given up. The idea that what happens if he comes to life in there, you know, if, you, if you're thinking small, you're thinking small. So what happens if he does come to life? He won't be able to get out. Don't laugh because they're already struggling. You would too if you were there. So, oh no, he can't get out now. Early on Sunday morning, the women that followed Jesus to anoint the body of Jesus is the final sign of respect. And it makes you wonder, was this poor planning or was it 
part of God's painted picture. Who's going to move the stone? Mark 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome, and Salome the, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body very early on the first day of the week. Just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away? Since somebody standing off the side was say, shouldn't you all thought about that beforehand? Took somebody with you? Who's going to roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? We can't do it. In other words, they're kind of acknowledging in the text that we can't do it. We can't move the stone. But I want you to think about it at a higher level. The stone in itself is the finality of death. And who can move the finality of death? Who can do that? Matthew 28, there was a violent earthquake for the angel, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven going to the tomb. He rolled back the stone and he sat on it. It's not a problem for the angel. So when you read the story that the women didn't plan ahead to get the stone removed, it's like God orchestrating that I don't want you to plan to do what I'm going to do. Because I'm going to do it. And he sends an angel to move the stone. Uh, did you ever notice I like the part that he sat on it? I like that. I, I think he just sits there and watches what's going to happen next. Um, the stone that had sealed the final blow of man is now moved by the love and the power of God. Death has been defeated by a man that would change everything Forever. I got cold chills on my arms when I said that. That event changed humanity. Everything's different. Why was the stone moved? To let Jesus out? No. Could the one who defeated death not get out without moving the stone? Couldn't he just walk through the stone? I mean, later when he appears to the, the apostles, he walks through the door. Can you walk through the stone? The stone was rolled away so we could see in, not so he could get out. So we could see the power God has over death. Remember the Lazarus event? John 11, Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? That if you believe, you'll see the glory. What's the glory? The glory is... I am the resurrection. I am the life. Somebody top that. You can't top it. Nobody else gives life. Nobody else raises dead people. Nobody else does it. This will become the dividing, dividing line of all mankind. I've often thought about uh, Jesus as this. There's a scripture. He says, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I came to bring division. So I want you to think about it like this. The entire planet Earth is going to have a line drawn down. And one side will be people standing with Jesus and the other side will be people standing away from Jesus. And he will be, he's, he's the line in the middle. That's how this whole thing will end. Those with him and those without him. Those with him, what does with him mean? I've already discussed it. With him is resurrection. About, there will be a bodily resurrection of the last day. And with him is life, which means your soul can't die because he's in you. And your body is going to get resurrected. And he's going to put your soul back in a resurrected body. You have resurrection and life. What, what, if, what if you're on the other side? You don't get the resurrection. You don't get life. You get separation. You get separation because you ask for separation. You get separation because you refused to join him when he held his arms open and said, if you'll believe me, if you believe that I am who I say I am, I'll, I'll, I'll enter you. I'll put my life in you. It'll be the dividing line of all mankind. John eleven twenty seven. When Jesus asked her, do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she, Martha, the sister of Lazarus, told him, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who was to come into the world. 
Let's go back to what I said earlier. If you, in that scene, if you looked at this man, Jesus, who looked like an ordinary man, physically speaking, he probably looked just like an ordinary man. But if you believe that that ordinary looking man was God, it would change everything. What, what did she say? I believe you are the Christ. That's the Messiah. I believe you're the Son of God, that you're God in flesh. You are Emmanuel, which is God with us, God wrapped in human skin. Jesus quotes the Psalms when he says this, Matthew 21. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scripture? The stone, they wrote it away at Lazarus. They wrote it away at his own resurrection. The stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. The stone was rolled away to reveal the living stone. It's important that you get the stone was rolled away to reveal the living stone that had been rejected. The whole idea that he was in the grave demonstrates that he was rejected. That's why he's in the grave. 1 Peter 2, 4. As you come to him, the living stone, that's Jesus, rejected by men, that's why he's in the grave, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, now he's talking to the church, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture, it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion. That's a, that would illustrate Jerusalem. A chosen and precious, precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Why? Because he's the resurrection, he's the life. Now, to you who believe this stone is precious, to you who believe, to you, he's looking at the church, to you who believe, this stone in Zion is precious, the most precious thing on earth. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or cornerstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Remember that dividing line? Jesus is in the middle. People are on both sides. They, they stumble over him. He's supposed to be the one you stand on. And yet he, you trip over him. You trip over his message. You trip over his truth. They stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. This stone will be your foundation or this stone will crush you. Let that sink in. It'll be the foundation, what you stand on in your whole life. All the battles you face in life, the fear of the grave, the fear of whatever we fear in our life. He's the foundation stone that I stand on it or I step off of it. And if I step off of it, the stone that was designed by God to stand on crushes me. I heard it put like this. I think it was David Reagan one time. He says, every human on earth is either under grace or under wrath. It's the same thing. The stone that he, let, he wanted you to stand on is grace. He, he made a place for you to stand there. But if you refuse to stand there, then you face wrath. And he'll crush you. And we'll get into some of that in, in, in a minute. Um, this stone will be your foundation or your undoing. So let's look at the Daniel end of days prophecy. We're talking about rolling away a stone, the rock, the builders rejected, became the cat stone, the rock, stone. Daniel's prophecy, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Daniel's called in to interpret the dream. Listen to what the dream comes out. Daniel 2, in the time of those kings, and by the way, those are the Gentile kingdoms of man. 
in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. What do you think that is? By the way, Daniel's like 580 years before Christ. So in the time of a, when the Gentiles rule the world, that'd be like now, okay? Are you with me? That'd be like now. Gentiles rule the world. God's going to intervene. He's going to set up a kingdom that's never going to end. Uh, it'll never be destroyed, nor it will ever be left to another people. It, what's it? This new kingdom. It will crush all these Gentile kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it, this new kingdom, will itself endure for how long? Forever. This is the meaning of the vision of here it comes, the rock. Okay, the rock that makes them stumble. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. Well, what do you mean this rock is not by human hands? It's not, he's not the son of Joseph. He's the son of God, not by human hands. A rock that breaks the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. What are all those precious metals? They are all the illustration of the Gentile kingdoms of men in the statue of Daniel. What's going to happen? The rock's going to come out of heaven. And he's going to hit the feet of iron and clay. And all the Gentile kingdoms will fall, turn to dust, and blow away into human history. And eventually never be remembered again. Listen. The great God has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the future in the time of Gentile kings. The dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. So let me, let me put it this way. There's a rock, R-O-C-K, coming out of heaven. If you're standing on that rock when he arrives, no problem. If you're not standing on the rock when he arrives, he'll crush you. Why couldn't they see? Do you think these people didn't know Daniel's prophecy? They knew Daniel's prophecy. How much did they understand? I don't know. Why couldn't they see? Even after Jesus had told them over and over and over again, he would die. Why can't people see today? Okay. We've got even more information. Why can't people see today? Even though he told us over and over again, he would return to judge the world. So in their day, he was going to come and die and raise from the dead. And in our day, what's he, tell, what's he telling us? What's he telling the world? What are preachers preaching around the world? He's coming back. And he's going to come back as judge and king. Why can't they see? They couldn't see then. They can't see now. No, I don't mean everybody, but as a, as a whole. Does the world see it? No, the world doesn't see it. The truth is in the scriptures, John 20. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran, that'd be John, outran Peter. He's younger. He outran Peter, reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. John didn't go in. Then Simon Peter, who's slower, comes in. He who is behind him arrived and he went into the tomb. What's that tell you? He's slow getting there, but he's more deliberate after he arrives. He went on in. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, that'd be John, also went inside. He saw and he believed. <laughs> he saw, what do you say? There's nothing here. He saw, but the, what they saw was order. It's a folded garment. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So they saw the physical evidence. But what they didn't do was they didn't take the physical evidence and lay it across the scripture. 
as a confirmation. Um, and a lot of people today are doing the same thing. Even unbelievers know this world's falling apart. Something's coming. What they don't do is what I just described. They don't lay it over the scripture so that they can see what it means and let this interpret it. They don't. They, they didn't either. What, what did it say? They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus, that they, understood, they saw, they heard, they saw, but did they take that and, and allow the scripture to reveal it? Not, not, not yet. Not yet. Jesus had to do something. That's a supernatural thing. What do I pray almost every time I open up on these services? Open our minds to understand the scripture. You know where that comes from? This. So Jesus, he's rose from the dead. And we've got the Emmaus Road thing, Luke 24. He said to them, now Jesus is talking. Um, he says to them, how foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So they saw the cross, okay? And by that time, they'd heard of the resurrection. How slow you are to believe all this, okay? All that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter his glory? And what, so how does Jesus correct their gap in knowledge? And beginning with Moses and the prophets... He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. How did Jesus explain the resurrected Christ? The Old Testament. That's how he did it. He used the scriptures. Let me make sure y'all got this. There was no New Testament then. Let's go grab Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There was no Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So the only scripture he could possibly have used to describe to them the resurrected Messiah is the Old Testament. There's no New Testament. Not yet. He's, he, the, it's, it's in the hearts of the apostles, much of it. But it's not written down till he can explain it. So when a preacher says the Old Testament is a stumbling block to the gospel, he's got to be reading a different Old Testament than I am. Because Jesus himself used the Old Testament to explain the resurrection of the Messiah. And if it was good enough for Jesus to use it, it's surely good enough material for us to use because it still explains everything in advance. And, and what it does is it validates because if somebody can tell you 500 something years in advance something that's going to happen, it makes it even more believable when it does happen. After disappearing from the men on the Emmaus Road, he just poofs, he's out of there, and he appears to his disciples in Jerusalem. This is when he walks through a wall, and there he is. Uh, Luke 24. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. And I imagine when he said that, he took all the peace out of the room because he scared them. They were startled and frightened, thinking he was, they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? And he does this. He said, look at my hands and my feet. What's that mean? That he's still in a body of a man that's been butchered. He's still in that body. Is anybody with me? He's got holes in his hands where the nails went in. He's got in his feet where the nails went in. This is, this is me. This is me. Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me. And see, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I do have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they did, still did not believe it. <laughs> did you get that? They still do not believe it. You can't be real. Why? Nobody goes over the red line and comes back. But he did. 
And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? I love that part. Why? He is, he is like us. You have anything to eat? You know, it's the first thing I do when I go in, I say, well, you got anything to eat? Okay? He won't. Well, it's, it's, it's his humanity. They gave him a piece of broiled fish. Good choice. And he took it and ate it in their presence. And I guess they wanted to see when he put it in his mouth if it just dropped straight through like a ghost would. See if it just fell out the bottom like Casper, the friendly ghost. Then he said to them, this is what I told you while I was with you. Now here it comes. I told you beforehand. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Everything in here has to happen. So again, let me say it again. So saying the Old Testament is a stumbling block to the gospel, it's the revelation of the gospel. And then he did this. This is why I pray this prayer when I open up these sessions. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. What weren't they able to do? They weren't able to take the physical reality and lay it over top of the Bible. So how does he remedy that? He says everything in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms had to happen. And then he does something to their mind. I don't know how he does it. He just does something to their mind and they see, that's in the Psalms. That's in Daniel. That's in Jeremiah. They get it. All, all of it starts going together. He told them, this is what is written. Where do you think it's written? The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Now here comes what much of the church doesn't want to talk about. Okay, that's his part. The Christ will rise on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. What's our part? We preach repentance as the door that opens forgiveness of sins. It's going to be preached to all the world. Where will it start? In Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. What is it? The Holy Spirit. Let me rephrase it. It's Jesus saying, it'll be me in the form of the Holy Spirit. Okay? I'm going to send you what my Father's promised, but stay in the city, stay in Jerusalem until you've been clothed with power from on high. In other words, you won't be able to complete this mission without this supernatural power. You won't be able to complete this mission without me in you. I need to be in you for you to have power to do it. Jesus is the Word, and the Word is Jesus. The truth is the Word, and the Word is the truth. And the next time the world sees Jesus, His name will be what? Next time the world sees Jesus, what's His name? Revelation 19, 13. He's dressed in a robe, He's dipped in blood, and His name is the Word of God. His name is the Word of God. His name is the Word of God. That's His name. And by the way, when he comes, he's coming to make war. He's coming to make war. People don't like to talk about it. He's coming to make war. Why would anyone be surprised by what's coming next? And you know what's coming next? Jesus is coming next. The second coming of Christ. The scriptures have told us over and over again he would return to judge the world. 1 Thessalonians 5. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Why, why is it like a thief in the night? Because they're not looking for him. They don't think. The Bible says he's coming, but they're not getting it. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. Is anybody listening? There will be, at that moment, there will be no escape. 
But you, brothers, are not in the darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-control. I put the NLT translation in there as well. Um, what's the difference between being caught like a thief in the night and being ready? Children of the day. Children of the light. What is the day and what is the light? Christ is the word. I am the light of the world. Whoever abides in me will never walk in darkness. Right? So the people who have the light. So um, that doesn't mean that we know the day or the hour. John 16. But when the, he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So here comes the Holy Spirit, Christ in me. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he, the Holy Spirit, in the church age, will tell you what is yet to come. Do you believe that? He will tell you the future. He will tell you what's coming. Now, let me connect it. There's a group of people that the coming of Christ is going to be like a thief in the night. There's another group of people that's saying, I've been expecting you. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's been revealing. Been re I will show you that which is to come. Not revealing the day or the hour, but revealing the season. Number one. Number two, all the world events that are happening right now. The Holy Spirit will do what Jesus did to the apostles. He will allow the Holy Spirit, open the mind to the Scripture so that you can take world events and put them into the Scripture and you'll be able to see. Do you believe that? Because I do. All right, next chapter, New Beginnings. Now we begin the book of Acts, which in essence is... A new beginning. It's the church age. I want you to think about tonight's chapter as the Garden of Eden part two. Tonight's story announces the birth of the church and the church age. And let me say this. The last days. On the day of Pentecost, I want you to get this. God's clock started counting down. On the day of Pentecost, Peter in Acts calls it the last days. There's a countdown that's began, um, and when it goes to zero, the full number of Gentiles will have received the gospel message of God. And the door closes, and the time ends. And what remains in that moment is seven years. The 70th week of Daniel. What remains in that moment is seven years. When the door to the Gentiles, the church age is closed, and God opens seven years. It's the tribulation. It's hell on the earth. But during that seven years, he makes one last call to Israel. One last call to come in. Um, but I want you to know, we're way into the last days. We must be in the last seconds of the last minutes of the last hours of the last months of the last years of the last days. Okay, we're way into this. The last days lead to the glorious day of the second coming of Jesus when the fellowship with God that was lost in the Garden of Eden will be fully restored through an, this extravagant plan of God to get us back. Before Jesus departed from the earth to sit at the right hand of the Father, he had a meeting with his disciples in which they asked him an incredible question that people on earth still want to know the answer to today. Here it comes, Acts 1. So when they met together, this is after the resurrection, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel. They know it's God's plan. What they don't know is when. 
So they're asking, is it now? Is, is, are you going to be king and put the kingdom back in Israel? Here's his answer. It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Did you catch it? The question. When will you restore the kingdom to Israel? They knew the Old Testament scriptures about the eternal kingdom coming from the seed of David. They knew what God told Mary through the angel Gabriel. We will give, you will give him the name Jesus. He, he will reign over the house of Jacob. His kingdom will never end, right? They know. They know about Daniel's prophecy. A rock comes out of the heavens, not by, cut by, not by human hands. It's going to crush the feet of iron and clay. A new kingdom's going to cover the earth. They know. They knew the end, but they didn't understand the timing. Here it comes. They didn't understand the timing of the middle, the church age, the time of the Gentiles. And for us in this room, we ought to say hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Because what do we live in? We live in the time in which he opened salvation to the Gentiles. We can become Isaacs. We can be part of Abraham's family, the children of God. Jesus, in verse 8, announces the church age and the power of the church. The Holy Spirit would replace the physical presence of Jesus on the earth. The Holy Spirit living in the bodies of believers. The body would become, the church would become the body of Christ. Okay? The body of Christ. How are we the body of Christ? Because we're on the outside, he's on the inside. He's the spirit, we're the flesh. We are the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit would fulfill the plan of God to reveal himself to all the peoples of the earth before the close of the church age and the second coming of Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. By the way, Jesus will restore the kingdom of Israel in the end. Are you listening? He's going, he's going to do what they brought up. He's going to restore the kingdom of Israel in the end. They were just getting ahead of themselves and leaving out the call of God to the Gentile world, which as of now has been 2,000 years. And I could talk about that for a long time, but I can't start that out and I'll never be able to stop. Zechariah 8, verse 20. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come. And the inhabitants of one city will go to another city, to another and say, let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. Now, let me give you a hint. At this point, the Lord Jesus is on the earth. Are you with me? Let us go at once and entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem and seek the Lord Almighty and entreat him. He's here. He's here. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, 10 men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we've heard that God is with you. They'll come from all over the world. So when they ask him the question, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Nope. But I will. And when I do, they will come from all over the world to Jerusalem. And they will grab the hem of one Jew and follow him and say, we understand that God is with you. So Jesus departs and the disciples spend the next 10 days replacing Judas, praying and waiting for the power that will enable them to change the earth, the Holy Spirit. Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost came, 
They were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where, where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The power of the Holy Spirit enabled in that scene. It enabled Peter to stand up and boldly preach a sermon that he did not write. And he preached it in an anti-Jesus environment that would have, could have cost him his life. Now, you need to understand something. There are no Gentiles in this scene. Are you listening? So many people in the church have this idea that the day of Pentecost was the day that all the Gentiles became the church. There's no Gentiles in here. Gentiles don't come to Cornelius and later. This is Jewish people. They're in the temple courts. You couldn't even be a Gentile and be in there. So Peter's going to stand up and he's going to preach a, a, a sermon to an audience that's anti-Jesus, probably. Okay? So, but they see something's happening. Something's happening. Um, let's go to verse 22. And here's his sermon. Men of Israel, listen to this. Now, Peter's just been filled with the Holy Spirit, okay? Which means he's really brave and he's really powerful. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge in you with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. The unstoppable movement of God in this scene has begun. It began where? In Jerusalem. It began in the Jewish people. Right? The power of the Holy Spirit living in the hearts of believers will carry the gospel of Christ to the world. And how will they respond? The world. How will the, it will eventually go to the Gentiles. Verse 37. But now we're still in the Jewish temple court, okay? When the people heard this, they were cut to their heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? You see the urgency? suddenly the truth, God, the Holy Spirit has removed this veil and they see what they couldn't see before. What are we going to do? And what's Peter saying? Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you, you, yeah, you, you can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice this, this promise, here comes part of the new covenant. This promise is for you your children, that now we're going generations into the future. And all who are far off, now here comes the Gentiles, right? All who are far off, and for all whom the Lord our God will call. Believe, repent, and be baptized. You know what happened that day? It was quite a church service. 3,000 said yes. So what will they do next? After the church is born, what will they do next? Go to verse 42. They, and I'm talking about new believers, brand new baby believers. They devoted themselves to the apostle teachings. Okay, from our perspective today, what is the apostles' teachings? This. This is it. Now, they could devote themselves to the apostles' teaching because they had the apostles hanging around. You and I have got to get what the apostles wrote and what was delivered through the Jewish people from the apostles. But what did they devote themselves to? The Word. This is the essence of the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, to fellowship, breaking bread, prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. Many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone 
as he had need every day, not just Sunday. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. At least in the early stages, the people were like, ooh, this is cool. You know? And the Lord, notice who adds to the church. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Time to move out. Now, where did he, Jesus say you'll start? You'll start in Jerusalem. And then what? Then you'll go to Judea. So if you take a map, Jerusalem's here. Judea is the, like the big area around Jerusalem. And then Samaria be like this. And then the world. It starts in Jerusalem and starts to expand. So it's time to move out. Acts 1.8. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. You can be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the world. Peter and John entered the temple and the Holy Spirit's power begins to start the fire that will change Jerusalem. It starts in Jerusalem. Okay. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those given uh, going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John, and then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And Peter said, silver or gold, I do not have. But what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Supernatural power. No man or men could do what these men were doing. Something, God was among them. God was in them. The only way to complete the mission was God would be in them. You ever notice the Great Commission? I know you did, but in the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded, and I am with you always to the end of the age. Church age, last days. I am with you. So who's doing it? Peter? John? Jesus. He's doing it. Verse 15. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Whoa. You think Peter's life changed? Will there be opposition to this move of God? Oh, yes. Can anyone stop this move of God? Oh, no. Why? Because God's doing it. Will Peter and John shrink back at the opposition? Church, pay attention to this one. Pay attention. Verse 11. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, he didn't want to let go. All the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us if, if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus you handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he, Pilate, had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked the murderer Barabbas to be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him. Now, now stop for a moment. This is the group of people that put Jesus to death. 
And Peter denied Christ because some girl asked him next to the campfire, what's happened to Peter? He's manning up. What happened? The Holy Spirit. Do you see it? He couldn't complete this mission without the Holy Spirit. Look, you killed the author of life? I mean, why wouldn't they just kill him? But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. And by faith in the name of Jesus. Now they're going to elevate Jesus. Not themselves. By faith in the name of Jesus. This man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and faith that comes through him. That has given this complete healing to him. As you can all see. The power of darkness will attempt to stop this move of God. But let it be clear. It is unstoppable. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and began, and because it was evening, they put him in jail till the next day. Many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Now they started with 120, they added 3,000 on Pentecost, and now they've got 5,000. This thing's growing. Will jail and flogging stop them from proclaiming Christ? Would it stop you? Would it stop you? What if they put you in jail? What if they take your house? What if they take your kids away from you? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of this for time. They threatened them. They beat them. And ultimately, they said this, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. I have, in, in other words, let me translate. I, Peter would say, I have encountered God. And because I have encountered God, you do not make me afraid anymore. I have encountered God. Do what you must does the Holy Spirit in the church today, is he different Holy Spirit than then? Do we have the same Holy Spirit? Then why do we shrink back? The power of the Holy Spirit so empowered them with purpose that they even rejoiced when they got beaten. We're so far from this. You know what? Nobody wants me to say it, but I got to say it. The church today doesn't look anything like this church. Nothing like this church. There's no comparison. When it rains, church attendance drops. These, these people are, are risking their lives to worship. And there's just no scale. There's no, no comparison. Verse 38, therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. This is Gamaliel given the counsel, let them go. For if their purpose and activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. Gamaliel was a smart guy. You're only going to find yourself fighting against God. You better back off. His speech, Gamaliel's speech, persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped. They never stopped teaching. Never. Proclaiming the good news. Acts 9 verse 10. The apostle Paul gets the calling. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him. 
in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to, our, to your saints in Jerusalem. He has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, here he comes, church. Go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. Somebody say hallelujah. He did not forget about you or me. He's the guy who wrote most of the New Testament. To the Gentiles and their kings, before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So here we are 2,000 years later. The church is still changing the world. And yes, there's still opposition. What's next? Interesting enough, it might be the very thing that the disciples asked Jesus as we began tonight. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Last scene tonight. Paul the one chosen for the Gentiles said this, Romans 11. I do not want you to be ignorant about this mystery. And he's talking about the Gentile church, Rome, Gentile church. So that you, church people, might be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles comes in. And so all Israel will be saved. What do you think that is? What do you think the event will be that brings the full number of Gentiles in? And when the full number of Gentiles comes in, he will turn his attention to Israel for one seven-year period. It's when he comes, the bridegroom comes for the bride. You ready for that event? Is everybody in your family ready for that event? Are there people you know who are not ready for that event? And why aren't we telling them? Father, thank you for your word. Make us strong and very courageous. May we carry out the mission by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, and amen. Thank you all.